0: The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range. Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and New L200.
1: All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. Motors.ie. It's Monday, it's The Right Hook and it's News Talk. George Hook here and uh, I've got some of the things that really got me going today. On today's program, We're broadcasting this week from Boston, and we're in the magnificent football stadium at Boston College, uh, where our studio is. It's all, of course, part of the Gateway to Europe initiative, as Irish entrepreneurs are here in America with a view to bringing business, and more importantly, jobs, back to Ireland. Uh, the Boston Marathon, we got here very early, um, because, of course, we weren't sure, or oh, so many roads closed. Every police officer, it seems, in Massachusetts is on duty for security, including uh, Army MPs, soldiers, elite security divisions. Everybody is out on force. But the atmosphere, I must say, is fantastic. This is the oldest marathon in the world. 30,000 participants today through the streets of Boston, and just you know, uh, driving a 5-iron from me here. Uh, the uh, participants go through the 21-mile mark, uh, and all along the route at this point is thronged by students of Boston College cheering them on. So it's um, a really special day, and then, of course, what's also important about it is is the the bravery and the attitude of Bostonians and Americans generally to say we're not going to be uh, frightened by uh, and uh, by this, so we're going to talk some runners who ran in that twenty thirteen marathon. We're here, of course, for the Gateway to Europe initiative, and we'll be doing a lot of that this week. Where Irish companies coming over here at their own expense. Uh, to bring b- business and more importantly jobs back to Ireland, well, with a bit of luck, the great Shane Coleman is standing by, sitting in my chair. Shane, welcome to the programme.
0: Ah, uh, good to be with you, George. I'm, I'm I'm getting all nostalgic for Boston just listening to you there.
1: Yes, it's a pretty it's a pretty special place. The weather's unbelievable. It's about seventy degrees here and. Um, Everybody uh, is down to shorts and t shirts except yours mm. truly, uh, who is sort of dressed for Alaska. <laughs> um, tell me, just tell me, Shane, Habibimos uh, government, yeah?
0: <laughs> George, you were talking about the. Uh I know you like quoting Latin to me because I know you know I, I didn't have a private school education so I, I don't understand yes. it but I get True. where you're coming from uh, You were talking about the can-do philosophy of the Americans Well, it's not translating uh, here into forming a government at least not yet uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, I suppose the good news they have been meeting for more formal talks today uh, Fianna Fáil leader Mihal Martin has already said his party would support a, a Fine Gael Labour minority government if that's what happens uh, Here he was over the weekend, George
2: we're not signing up to a programme for government, uh, but we do accept that undertakings have to be given, and we're entering into this in a very positive frame of mind uh, because we have, we've looked at what's happening across Europe, in Canada and New Zealand and elsewhere, where minority governments have worked, and so we're committed to making that work. And the, you know, the, the precise uh, modality uh, is to be worked out uh, with
1: the negotiators, and, and we need to give them space to do that. You could, also, you could almost think he was serious about it. Oh, I t- I think I, I actually
0: think he is kind of serious, but I I think that's the least of the problems at this stage. No, in terms but of can you put together. this
1: in the sport, Shane? Put this in the sporting context for the moment. You know, like you you're playing a match, and one team is saying, "Listen, we'll help the other guys to score goals against us." I mean, Meo Martin's purpose in life is is to get rid of Fine Gael and Labour. So he's, he's supporting tongue-in-cheek. Mm. I, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. But, he, but he's only supporting but, but such time as he think, thinks he'll, he'll be in government.
0: Yeah, but yet when Alan Jukes and Fine Gael did it in 1987, it was in the national interest. I mean, I, I'm not sure it can work both ways. I, I think that, I mean, the really interesting development over the last couple of days, George, though, has been This suggestion that the Labour Party, which as we know has been licking its wounds uh, for the last, whatever it is, 52 days at this stage, that it may get involved in forming the next government. Uh, Acting Finance Minister Michael Noonan was quoted on this uh, today and he was speaking about it. He said, it would be great if as many political parties were involved in forming a government as possible. It would be better if you had some independence and Labour and the Greens, as I say, Uh, All those who were willing to participate in government uh, could put uh, a reasonably uh, stable government together, provided uh, Fianna Fáil ultimately supported it. Uh, But when uh, half the doll excludes
1: itself from government,
0: it's very hard to form a government. So there may be an election.
1: Yeah, but um, Labour would have to go to Congress, wouldn't mm, they? they, they would. They'd have to have a full meeting of of Labour members to agree to go into government, wouldn't they?
0: They would, and it'll be tricky because I think the majority view in the Labour Party among membership at the moment is that the party should retire to the opposition benches and set about rebuilding. The only thing I would say is... If Brendan Howland, I think it would need someone of Howland's stature. I don't think at this stage it could be Joan Burton or Alan Kelly. I think they've been devalued by the uh, election campaign, even if they don't necessarily see it as such. If someone like Brendan Howland was to go and argue strongly for it at conference, there's a possibility that it could happen. But I would think you would need all seven TDs uh, on board for that to happen. I think it's less likely than more likely. But, George, it could have the impact of of dragging things on a little bit longer than than we had thought because we, there had been hopes a government could be formed this week or certainly by early next week. If Labour were to get involved in all that, it would take a little bit longer. Um, you might remember uh, the Green Party leader. I think the Greens, if Labour go for it, the Greens would definitely go in a heartbeat. Uh, the Green Party leader, Eamon Ryan, uh, I think he was talking to yourself on uh, that Sunday, when, when the day after the election where where you were in this, in this studio. Uh, have a listen to what he said then, George.
3: I think it'd be interesting now the next day or two, to let's throw a few ideas out there. Let's throw a few possibilities out there. Let's say, why not a Labour, Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin plus others coalition and see what people, you know, why not? Because that may bring us back to the realisation that it's only just Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael that could do the numbers. And that might put the necessary pressure on them to form a government if that's what they want to do. It's...
1: I mean, he was wrong then, and uh, uh, his suggestion was never a starter, Sinn Féin, fall uh, the, the, Then they walked away from discussions. I'm not sure what the Greens... I'm not sure what anybody's playing at. Everybody's playing national interest, but not actually doing anything. Like, just have an election. That's much cleaner. Uh, just have an do election. Do you think...
0: Oh, I don't know. I, I think, to be fair to the Greens, I think they don't want to be part of, the gov- of a government that's just and the independence. They feel... That, that that government wouldn't work, and it certainly wouldn't work for them. I think if Labour were in there, I think they'd be in in a heartbeat. I think the point Eamon Ryan was making, I think he knew there was no chance of a Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin, Green administration, but I think he was saying there is a possibility of a number of parties coming together, and I think that is a, still a real scenario, Um, the, the idea of Fine Gael, Labour, the Greens, independence. What it would mean, George, is that if La- you'd have an extra, what, nine votes between Labour and the Greens, it would mean Fine Gael could pick and choose the Independents that they wanted to be part of. It. And they could pick those Independents who were interested in national politics, as opposed to some of the, the pork barrel politics that we saw uh, in the Sunday Independence on Sunday, when we saw billions of Euro of, of um, commitments being sought by Independents, including hilariously uh, one Independent, unnamed Independent, saying he was looking for an alternative route to get from the west of Ireland to Dublin Airport that didn't involve going by the motorways. I mean, that's the level that that we're at and so I I can see the argument for for other parties getting involved in that scenario.
1: Election. I tell you, election.
0: You might be right. Just just have an
1: Election. Okay. Anyway, I want to vote. I like going into the old booth in the National School, Lolly Park, and putting in my one, two, three, and all that sort of stuff.
0: I think you and I might be the only per- people in the country that would actually look forward to another <laughs> election, George. Um,
1: <laughs> anyway, what well, you have more news on the buses or the trains or? Whatever. Yeah,
0: well, a little bit of better news on the issue of the uh, the Lewis strike. Now, look, there's been it's important to stress no resolution or not even any sign at this stage of a resolution. But what has happened is. Lewis drivers have called off their planned 48-hour strike this weekend. Uh, SIP2 says it's to create space for talks between ticket inspectors and control room staff. They're due to meet Transdev management for talks on paying conditions tomorrow. SIP2, by the way, is also seeking a meeting with the Minister for Transport, uh, Pascal Donoghue. There are still, though, a whole series of strikes still planned. 28th of May, 4th of, or sorry, 28th of April, 4th of May, 13th of May, 20th of May, 26th and 27th of May. But I I suppose this is the first, if I can use a, a train analogy, the first light, light in the tunnel um, and maybe, just I maybe I'll
1: tell what's happening, I think the drivers have suddenly realised there's a possibility these trans dev guys might walk I think it suddenly hit them you know, eh, we're not dealing with Erin Roderick here, we're dealing with an, a multinational who, for whom Ireland is a small cog in in their P&L account and they're going to just eh, they could easily walk and I think that is the realisation that's happening mm-hmm. I,
0: I think you raise an interesting point, I mean there's two ways of looking at, I mean Transdev took a pretty tough line with its talk about putting staff on protection per- protective notice. Now, did that have the effect of, some people are saying, well, that's unhelpful and that, you know, I I wouldn't like to see that happening. It's, it's, It's raising the ante. The other way of looking at it is that possibly, just possibly, it helped focus minds. But I suppose the important thing, George, is that people are talking again. And at least when people are talking, there is some chance of a resolution.
1: I suppose, yeah. We're talking about government as well, though, Shane. I'm not sure talking does anything. <laughs> um, the the crisis continues. The European Union, in its appalling efforts to solve the migrant crisis, this deal with Turkey and Greece, in which they're essentially paying them almost per head of migrant that they're going to take, it hasn't stopped people uh, taking the uh, appalling risks of coming across the Mediterranean.
0: Yeah, exactly a year ago today, George, we had that dreadful, dreadful tragedy when I think 800 migrants uh, died uh, off the coast of Italy. Well, today, uh, more than 400 people are feared dead. That was after it's believed there it was a number of boats capsized in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it's understood the migrants had been trying to reach Italy from Egypt, there were lar- mainly uh, my understanding is mainly Somalis uh, some Eritreans and Ethiopians involved uh, as well so desperate tragedy there, the Pope you may, I don't know if you're aware of this in, in the States, the Pope intervened in the crisis at the weekend, he travelled to that Greek island of Lesbos and returned to Rome with three migrant families on board his plane, all are to be given a new life uh, by by the Vatican but yeah, it's a desperately sad situation George and I, I don't know what this you said the EU's response has been pathetic I don't know what they can do, to be honest, at this stage. No,
1: but, yeah, but, I mean, you you can't seriously think that whatever you... Like, my views are clear uh, Mm. on it, but I'm not sure that my views are that you pay another country. The Australians are doing it. They're paying, you know, impecunious islands in the Pacific to take uh, migrants, and that's what the EU is doing. The EU is saying, listen, we'll pay you money uh, if you... uh, if If you take the migrants and like that's unconscionable, whatever else they're doing uh, but it, I tell you the thing is this will uh change also, I'm absolutely certain of it the migrant crisis will be crucial in Brexit and it will uh, ultimately be the end of Angela Merkel as Premier of Germany there's going to be casualties uh, as a result of this, there's no doubt. Listen, we're going to talk more, I'm in Boston Um, Gareth thinks nobody believes politicians of course nobody believes them, although Martin and Loud said, I was mentioning about me all Martin, in Soccer Parl helping the other team to score. Well, that did happen. Listen, Martin Martin and Lads reminded me. It was a World Cup match, of course, where uh, they both knew that a certain result would Mm. qualify Mm. uh, both countries. You'd probably know that. West Germany
0: against Austria, 1982 Uh, World Cup. Was it?
1: Yeah. All right. Two German-speaking teams. You can't trust these German speakers. It was always going to happen, Shane. Mm. A drone hitting an airplane, wasn't
0: it? Yeah, I know this is something you've been hot on for um, quite a while, George. It is extraordinary. This is, uh, in case people haven't heard uh, what happened, a suspected drone strike involving a passenger plane at, at Heathrow Airport. Basically, the pilot of a British Airways flight arriving in yesterday from Geneva reported an object believed to be a drone hitting the front of the aircraft as it came to land in heathrow yesterday afternoon now it's extraordinary for a number of reasons well it's obviously incredibly dangerous it could potentially bring down a plane if it had crashed into the the cockpit window for example who knows what could have happened it's also completely illegal to use drones within uh, 400 feet uh, or uh, Sorry, uh, at less than, uh, over 400 feet, but also within, uh, I think it's three to five, I think it's five miles of an airport, you're not allowed to uh, use it. And here you had a drone, it would seem, hitting a plane about to land at Heathrow. Really, really scary.
1: Well, all of a sudden, when you were a kid... First of all, there were gliders, and you, which you made yourself from balsa wood, and and it would fly a few. If you know, you throw it up, and mm. and really good ones would fly a few a hundred feet. Then there were there were planes that you could control with a remote control. Only really wealthy kids had those, but nevertheless, you could do it but what you now have is every tom dick and harry can actually have a drone in which eh uh, he can fly up in the air eh uh, uh, over buildings he can be going over liberty hall taking camera shots of liberty hall and sending it back to his to his laptop, it can be droning over my back garden when I'm sunbathing, uh, or whatever. So, this is an incredible i i don't know how they're going to stop it. Mm. But it should be—I mean, it shouldn't be just illegal. It should have incredibly tough penalties. Well, it does, now, I don't know how you track the guy down. Oh, it does have tough penalties. I mean, you can
0: potentially go to prison, as far as I understand, for flying a drone close to an airport. But you're right; it'll be difficult to track it down. I actually had a look at at, at the uh, the figures for this. They're they're pretty extraordinary. In the U.S. alone last year, between now between the end of August and the end of January, so what's that? A, a, a six month, a five or six month period, five hundred and nineteen incidents involving passenger aircraft. And unmanned drones in the US Now not all of those involved The drone actually hitting the plane But one in three were close encounters um, 60% of them took place Within five miles of an airport
1: Yeah I mean I I, I think it's terrifying I mean I really do you know, uh, And then from the sublime to the ridiculous, Johnny Depp's wife has admitted lying on immigration forms to get her dogs into Australia. Yeah, What's the- this about dogs? Why are dogs treated like humans? Why has everybody got their knickers in the twist about a dog and wants to bring a dog into Australia of all places? Like, you can't bring a, pe- a set of golf clubs or an apple into australia without going through really tough scrutiny how in the name of god did she think she was going to get her dogs in
0: i know they're calling it the war on terriers uh, george and the, the two <laughs> <laughs> the two most famous dogs in the world pistol and boo i actually saw one of the news channels today they, they they zoned in on a window, they were behind a window, and they circled the two dogs like they were sort of international criminals or something. But I think why this story has got so I mean, obviously what they were trying to do was absolutely ridiculous and silly. But I don't know if you've seen this video where they issue an apology. Um, and it is the most half-hearted, lame apology. It literally looks like a, a gun is being held to their heads to actually give the apology. I think we can have a listen to it, George.
4: Australia is a wonderful island, with a treasure trove of unique plants, animals, and
0: people. It has to be protected.
4: Australia is free of many pests and diseases that are commonplace around the world. That is why Australia has to have such strong biosecurity laws.
0: And Australians are just as unique, both warm and direct. When you disrespect Australian law, they will tell you firmly.
4: I am truly sorry that Pistol and Boo were not declared. Protecting
0: Australia is important. Declare everything when you enter Australia. I I laugh. I still I'm still giggling, and I've heard Why it about ten times. Was,
1: I just vomited my breakfast granola <laughs> over the laptop. <laughs> what a disgusting pair!
0: Do you know what it it has been likened to? Do you remember those um, Hale and Pace, the uh, the comedic du- uh, duo from the early nineties? They were called the Management. And it's been like, that, and it does sound like that, don't mess with Australia, mate. Um, but clearly, they're doing it incredibly reluctantly, uh, and they've been doing it because they thought if, uh, the, the court would go lighter. Them, why not
1: send them to jail? Why not send them to jail? Like, the the thing is, imagine when... when we've done it a ton of times. Do you remember when we used travel home and there were foot and mouth alerts? And the last thing you would do, you read the message and said, if you were in contact with farm animals or on a farm, yeah, yeah. report. And we all, if we were slightly worried, we'd report it because we knew the damage we would do to Ireland's agriculture if we brought foot and mouth into yeah. the country. No, you're right. And we've... And and this pair, like, bring a, a a pair of dogs in who could be carrying any kind of stuff. Yeah, I wouldn't go, they wouldn't have a dog in the house anyway. Should they have all? They carry all sorts of stuff.
0: You you, have could you got dogs? No, I haven't. You, you could you could send them to prison, uh, George. But but who would mind Pistol and Boo if if they did that? <laughs>
1: All right. Listen, I'll be talking to you tomorrow when we'll have news of an election. The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander
5: 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your
1: fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie all right, welcome back. It's the Right Hook with George Hook, and we're broadcasting from Boston, Mass, uh, on the day of the Boston Marathon. Extraordinary weather in the low 70s here. Everybody in T-shirts and shorts. And and we're in the Boston College football stadium. Uh, and just uh, about 500 yards away, the runners are at uh, mile 21 as they come up Heartbreak Hill. And uh, the Fenway Park is full of uh, baseball fans. The Red Sox are beating the Toronto Blue Jays by 1-0, uh, if you're remotely interested. We're here, of course, because the Gateway to Europe initiative is here. Ireland entrepreneurs coming over here, spending their own money to get business and jobs back to Ireland and for the fifth year. Uh, the programme supports that uh, initiative it all kicks off for them uh, on Wednesday I'm joined now by the Sinn Féin TD for Dublin Midwest on O'Brien. Uh, Deputy O'Brien is the Sinn Féin appointee to the Dáil Subcommittee on Housing and Homelessness Deputy O'Brien welcome to the programme
5: Thank you very much George uh,
1: Just explain to me how you think a committee can fix this problem
5: Well, the proposal came from Sinn Féin two weeks ago, and what we wanted to do is bring TDs from all parties and independents around the table, uh, engage with uh, those people working at the coalface of the housing and homelessness crisis, and come up with recommendations for government in terms of immediate actions, but also more longer-term actions uh, that we think can help address the crisis. Obviously there's been a lot of discussion, there's been a lot of conferences, there's been a lot of fora, but what's clear is the housing and homeless crisis are getting worse. So I think all of us who are newly elected TDs, irrespective of of the ongoing talks around government formation, want to be able to contribute to this very important solution. And I think if all politicians, the 14 of us who are appointed to this committee, get around the table and approach it in a constructive way, I think we can come up with some good suggestions that could make a real difference to some people's lives.
1: It's very interesting that you think 14 people of different political colours can come up with a solution to the homelessness crisis when the same political parties they represent represent can't come up with a government. I mean, it doesn't send out much of a signal to people listening that you guys can actually agree about anything.
5: Well, clearly there are lots of issues we don't agree on, uh, uh, and I suppose for those of us uh, who weren't directly involved in talks with Fianna Fáil and Fine about uh, government formation, that's because of our very deep policy incompatibilities. But the homelessness crisis, George, is reaching such a, a serious level that I think it behoves all of us to get around the table and say, notwithstanding those differences, there are families being made homeless every single night. There's a growing number of children, almost 2,000 of them, around the state sleeping in emergency accommodation tonight. So whatever about political differences on other issues or about who we think should or shouldn't be Taoiseach, there is work we can be doing today. There are recommendations we could be making to government within a matter of weeks. And like this what? Is, this like, some... Give
1: me the champagne. Give me, like, forget the other 13 or 14. Give me your answer. Okay. What do you think? It's over 2,000 people. I don't know how Family. that's got to be something sure. at the order of a thousand families or eight hundred families exactly that,
5: two uh, two things you could do straight away. The first is right. is that uh, the minister could give an instruction to local authorities to start using compulsory purchase orders to purchase vacant houses uh, that are at an appropriate location appropriate cost to get families out of emergency accommodation into homes. In my own constituency, I could take you to scores of houses, Joe, uh, or George, apologies, uh, that are lying vacant on the private market, some of them former council homes that have been bought and are now repossessed by the banks. So that's one thing that could happen straight away. The second thing is we need to stop uh, the flow of families into homelessness. And uh, one of the biggest causes at the minute is repossessions by banks of buy-to-let properties. Again, I understand there's legislation currently sitting with the Department of Environment that was given to them uh, by an NGO in the field that would give greater protection uh, to private rental tenants in homes repossessed by uh, from buy-to-let landlords from, say, vulture funds or banks. So there are two things that I think we seriously need to look at uh, and we need to be saying, you know, if there is consensus, can we apply the relevant political pressure? To whoever is the minister, uh, one to try and find homes for those families who are currently in emergency accommodation and two to stop the flow of families into homelessness. Now there are also medium and longer term issues and I think uh, notwithstanding the fact that uh, the problem has been getting worse, again a lot of us are newly elected, we have a lot of experience working in local authorities uh, on on housing issues and working on a cross-party basis. So when there is a serious crisis what do you do? You roll up your sleeves. You get around the table. You really look at everything that's been looked at before. You try and come up with some new ideas, uh, and then you make real proposals. This isn't a, a long-winded talking shop. It's a time-limited committee for two to but three it months. It
1: is, though. It is a long-winded talking shop. Very like opposite, you're talking. George. Like you seem. To, no, but Deputy O'Brien, my guest is own O'Brien Fein uh, who is on the new dual subcommittee on housing and homelessness. You're talking about two months, like as if that's really quick that two months is 60 more families on the streets that's another 200 children on the streets and the, uh, the term, before you the, before the, you even make a proposal
5: no that's not the case the the uh, agreement that was reached by td's last week was that we would make an interim report at the end of, of this month and then a full report at the very start of June. Uh, and in the meantime, if we have newly elected TDs, if we have the minister and other bodies there, there is no reason why we can't be making interim recommendations as well. Look, we're elected to represent our constituents, but also to try and tackle uh, some of these very big issues. Uh, and the most sensible thing to do, when I mean, everybody keeps talking about new politics and we need to get away from the old adversarial way of doing business of the past, on the housing and homeless crisis, given the scale of the crisis affecting families and children. Let's start doing some work now. Uh, Maybe a government formed this week, next week, or the week after. We don't yet know. But in the meantime, those of us who are elected and who have knowledge and experience in these fields, we'd like to start working on trying to address at least some of
1: the causes of this crisis. And I think that's a good fix. What value is there in bringing Alan Kelly before you? What value is there that... Alan Kelly's busted flush. He's not going to be the Minister for Environment in the next government. Um, Whether he was responsible for this or or not it's irrelevant uh, you want new thinking like because scoring political it, here's, here's, points here's, off it, Alan it, Kelly is a waste not. of time
5: and, and i say this, it, it would be a huge mistake if any of us went into this committee to try and score political points the purpose of this committee is not to go back over who is responsible for the crisis that our housing system is in. It's for people to come with constructive, positive suggestions of ways of doing things that could solve problems. And, and remember, Alan Kelly is the minister today. There are senior departmental officials, there's budgets, there's local authorities that get direction uh, from the minister uh, and his senior officials. So until such time as a new minister is appointed, Alan Kelly can do things and we want to play a role in, in assisting him, advising him and if uh, it's required, a put some pressure on him to do things that weren't done before. Again, I go back to the compulsory purchase order proposal. Uh, there are scores of houses joe that could be purchased but the department would have to give approval to local authorities to purchase more of them okay. than they've been allowed to date that would require right, the the minister,
1: uh, and that's one right. of the
5: issues we'd like to look at
1: deputy obrien you're, you you said your experience at local council and your obviously the reason your party has 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 selected you for this job is to think you know what you're talking about so roughly speaking because i don't know how much would it cost to keep a family in a hotel, do you think? I mean, it's, it's, how much it is cost, it cost to keep Euros, these families in Euros, a hotel per
5: week? It costs €100 Euros a night, George. It is a phenomenal amount of money, uh, and it would cost uh, far less. If we, for example, address the issues around the low levels of rent supplement or, indeed, if we tried to find some way of controlling rents by linking to the Consumer Price Index. The the most expensive way, both emotionally and, and physically for the family, but financially for the taxpayer of tackling this crisis, is having people in B&Bs okay. and in hotels.
1: All right. you, I think you said 100. 100 nights, right? euros per yeah, that's 700 a week. That's two and a half. That's 3,000 a month. Yeah. Now, you get a pretty fancy, dandy house or apartment, even in Dublin, for 3,000 a month. So, therefore, there is a complete, forget about Anything. There is just a financial illogicality Absolutely. about Absolutely. paying 3000 a month when you can get it. Now, the, the the only thing about that theory is that we know demand exceeds supply. Can I stop you there, Joe, and just say this?
5: Right. You, I know a if you call so me Joe place.
1: once more, W.O. Brin, I'll get really apologies. upset. Uh, George, All right, my,
5: my, my apologies. I know families go who are still being made homeless uh, because the rent supplement levels are lower than the market rent. Market rent, for example, okay. for a two- or three-bedroom property is somewhere between twelve and 1,400 euros in many parts of, of Dublin City and County. But these yeah. people are being made homeless because the rent supplement levels uh, uh, can't reach those levels of the market rent. So the solution okay. there is to consider raising rent supplement at the same time as controlling rent by linking uh, rent increase, the consumer price index. That was something the government looked at previously and chose not to do. But again, that's another issue we think they urgently need to look at and reconsider in light of the fact that families are still being made homeless as a result of the spiraling cost of rent. And that's before we even talk about working families who are being made homeless because they're not eligible for rent supplement, because the local authorities, areas in which they live, aren't participating yet in the government's new housing assistance payment scheme, and who are also being yeah. made homeless. Families in jobs at George, who simply cannot afford market rents. So again, these are urgent issues which I think it's incumbent on all politicians to be discussing yeah. and proposing the only- solutions to.
1: Yeah. The the only problem, Deputy O'Brien, is that on the issue of controlling rents, like you can't, you can, you can more defy gravity than you can defy economics, and and the first law of economics is where demand exceeds supply, the price goes up. So therefore, if you create if you create an artificial rental market, then you're not going to get anybody investing well, in that market. Here's two two interesting things to consider.
5: Here's two interesting things to consider. The first thing is the government already intervenes enormously in the private rental market. 75,000 households are getting rent subsidies, and that artificially pushes up the cost of rents. But here's also the point. Landlords and tenants benefit from well-regulated rent certainty in the rental market. When the crash happened, uh, rental incomes for private rental landlords plummeted, putting many of them out of business. If rent certainty had existed at that point, they wouldn't have had the severe shock they had then. Likewise for tenants now, rocketing rent is bad for tenants. So what you need is you need landlords to be able to make a reasonable profit from their economic activity and tenants to have a security of rent and tenure. Rent certainty works in other countries it is a good idea both for the landlord and the tenant if it's done right. right. And I have to say, those landlord organisations who have argued against it are doing their own members a disservice as well as the tenants who want to live in those properties.
1: Well, I have a proposal for you. Sack the other 13. Put Deputy Owner Brin, Sinn Féin TD uh, in charge of it and then if you make a horlex of it, sack you. I mean, the problem is that you will hide behind the committee. You and the other 13, it's, it's a committee and a committee will never Fix it. You take over, and if you make a Horlicks of it, you get sacked, that's the way they get it well, done. George, what I that's the to way it, gets done it bring, the world. Invite
5: us back on the show in four weeks' time after the committee is up and running, uh, and see what we're doing. And then at the end of the three-month period, again, see. Okay. We are elected to try and propose solutions to problems. All right. This I'll ask you back. Deep, uh, and we need to get on with the work we were elected to do.
1: All right. I'll ask you back. That was Deputy. Ono oh, Branch invented the part of uh, the Doll Housing Committee. I already gave me an interesting text. She said DCC bought my mother's four bedroom house in Dublin six weeks ago. How's a perfect, Nick? Nobody's moved in today. Bureaucracy. Of course, it is. There are tons of houses and apartments around the city. Uh, George, the key matters to address, listener says, are supply of housing. And secondly, why can so many people not house themselves? It's economics, I'm afraid. And Johnny Mead, send me a text. Love the show, Joe. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm in Boston today uh, because it's Boston Marathon Day. And in just a moment, I'm going to reflect back on the awfulness of 2013.
5: The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater
1: automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips.
2: MitsubishiMotors.ie
1: Hello and uh, welcome back. It's Patriots Day in Boston today, Bank Holiday, but of course that's the day of the Boston Marathon. Three years ago, two bombs exploded near the finish line on Boylston Street, killing three and injuring an estimated 264 others. In those three deaths was an eight-year-old boy. It was a week Boston will never forget, and the running of this, the oldest marathon in the calendar, is a tribute uh, to the commitment of the people of Massachusetts not to be terrorized by uh, uh, terrorism. And have a listen to this.
4: We have some breaking news. Uh, let's get now to Boston. Apparently there's been an explosion at the Boston Marathon. Within
5: 30 seconds of it, there was a second one. And when you look back, it's just right immediately on the finish line with
1: uh, just uh, two puffs of smoke. Information comes here in a very sketchy way and it also comes here primarily through uh, television news uh, readers who, who keep quoting sources.
5: We've already captured and killed suspect number one. Suspect
0: number two is on the loose. We know who he is. We've identified him.
5: We're asking people to shelter in place. In other words, to stay indoors with their doors locked and not to open the doors. To have my the governor of the state, not just some local yokel, sheriff, or whatever, the governor of my state announce, everybody stay indoors, everybody lock yourself down, all in the search of one guy. I, I, I don't know what to say to that other than on, on behalf of rational Massachusetts residents everywhere, I
0: apologize. A Twitter message from the Boston PD. He said it all, captured, the hunt is over, the terror is over.
6: Why? What's the point? There's no sense, there's no point to it. You know, what did it achieve?
1: All right, well, uh, I remember that so well. Um, We were in the seaport. Hotel in Boston. You heard uh, uh, Michael Graham there. A clip of Michael talking about how people were told literally stay indoors. The the whole city closed down, and as as many people I think quite rightly felt, uh, shutting one of the biggest cities in America down uh, wasn't really the way to go. But success eventually. They captured uh, the two terrorists, um, people who had got so much from America to make their lives better and this was their answer. Uh, Before I flew to America I spoke with Dave Power uh, an Irishman who had run in that very marathon and I began by asking him what he remembered of that day.
2: So I ran the race and I just finished the race um, about 30 minutes before I gathered up my gear at the finish line uh, had arranged to meet my parents and uh, was going off to meet family and we just sat down for lunch and um, then kind of things changed and we forgot about the marathon.
1: i I've never been close to a bomb going off as close as you were. What about the spectators and the participants and everything what happened after this and presumably enormous bang and smoke and everything.
2: Yeah, so you've just finished the marathon, you've ran 26 miles, you're pretty hungry and thirsty. So I'd walked up Balsam Street to meet family. My dad had a table in a restaurant. We'd ordered lunch, we'd seen the menu, we'd had chowder. I'd had one sip of beer in front of me. And then something happened outside. We were 100 yards from the second bomb location across the street. Uh, and we saw security running outside the window and we saw police. So you thought it was a fire alarm or something, an incident, somebody, a robber, they're chasing a robber down the street. Um, The restaurant manager came in. She said, sit down, enjoy your meal. Everything's okay. 30 seconds later, she came in and said, everybody, get the hell out of here. And it was like a fire evacuation. that time, we thought it was maybe a fire alarm or we didn't know. It took about an hour, I would say, until we actually knew what had happened. People sitting back at home or on the internet and TV knew more than we did.
1: What about people who were in the street and close by? I mean, one of the bombs went off quite close to finish,
2: really, didn't it? The first one happened at the finish line, and then the second one happened about 500 yards back up the street, and that's where we were. We were very close to that. So we were evacuated out the back of this prudential centre, shopping centre. Once we got out on the street, it was like in the movies when you have helicopters overhead, you've action movies, you've cop cars screeching, tires screeching around corners, uh motorbikes, ambulances, and not just one or two ambulances, but when you see twenty or thirty ambulances all going in one direction we didn't we thought it was a shooting, but then you realize it was bigger than a shooting because of just the volume of uh police and ambulances.
1: What did you do then? I mean you now know you've got a you've got a major problem going on i mean the instinct I would have thought is to get the hell out of there,
2: yeah, so we were. Pushed out onto the streets. there's tens of thousands of people walking around. It's a big event. There's spectators, there's racers. The police then, they had a shutdown on the city, but they wanted to evacuate the city centre because that was a if there was more bombs, who knew where they were going to go off. So they just told people to walk. Just walk out of the city centre. So we started walking, and with no destination, we just kept walking. Um, we walked for about 20 minutes, half an hour, and we, we got tired. We sat down, and then we got to speak to some people who had phones or Maybe knew what had happened because we still thought it was maybe a shooting or a gas. Exp- we would no idea. And um, we met a girl who was in complete shock. You know, people who are really their eyes are looking through you. They don't know where they are. Really traumatized. She'd been at the finish line. Heard a, a loud bang. She said like a cannon going off, and she just ran and she didn't stop till she ran out of steam. And we met her. So,
1: but completely traumatized.
2: Yeah, just on a different planet she was watching a friend so there was all that disconnection you didn't know where your friends or family were luckily we'd met up I was with my family so we were together but you had people running the race they got to mile 20 and then the police shut the street so you're in your shorts and t-shirts trying to get to the finish and you're like well I'm doing this marathon hang on I've you know trained for this and they're telling you no stop you suddenly get cold because you've no clothes, you've no keys, you've no phone. Your family don't know where you are.
1: And you're you're six miles away.
2: Yeah. So, you know, people were wandering around in shorts and T-shirts with no way to get home. they shut down the transport. If your keys were in a hotel or in a, you know, a, a car, you weren't getting back to that. So all the Dunkin' Donuts, the shops were offering free food and just bringing people in out the cold because it wasn't that warm. It's April. Yeah. Um, so that's that was kind of the chaos. What
1: about the people of Boston? What was your reaction? I mean, how do you think they coped with
2: all this? Yeah, it was amazing because we stayed for a week afterwards. <laughs> so we kind of saw the aftermath. It took four days until the Friday until they caught caught the guy. And it was an FBI manhunt. You know, as it progressed during the week, they released pictures. And have you seen this man? And I went through my pictures because I had pictures of that exact street of where that bomb went off. And you're looking through the crowd to see, was he in your picture? And he wasn't, but we were just walked up that same street 30 minutes before. But how people reacted was amazing. Uh, Just the spirit, positive spirit of the people of of Boston and Massachusetts. We were up in Maine, but it just was amazing that everybody had a connection to the city or to the marathon. everyone's either run it or knows somebody who's run it or... It's such a part of the city.
1: We were there, of course. We were broadcasting, and and um, because the police had locked the city down, there were suggestions they'd locked it down for sort of too long, weren't they? There were there was suggestions that the police had sort of overreacted on the Friday. Yeah, so
2: we, we since we were up in Maine, we we got we were driving a lot. We got to hear a lot of the radio talk radio. So over here, you know, you you get. All sorts of media, but you don't get as much right wing conservative media as some of the, the TV or the radio talk show guys, Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck and all these guys, Sean Hannity, who have very different opinions about what should happen to bombers. Their views were very extreme in terms of, you know, going after terrorists and after certain people and were a lot more. Tougher stance than some of you Yeah, might Michael
1: add. Graham was with me that yeah. day. He was very much part of that ilk of Glen of Glen Beck and so on. He was going nuts about the shutdown in fact. Yeah, and, like and, he felt there was a complete sort of uh, surrender to terrorism.
2: Yeah, and there was a huge on those shows was a huge criticism of the police chief, Ed Davis and the, the the mayor and the governor and how they'd all over were reacting to this, shutting down the city, stopping people going to work. And then, four days later, when they had the manhunt and they eventually found the guy in the in the boat in the back garden, that they had a shelter in place, which meant you couldn't go to school, you couldn't go to work if you were on your way on the the metro or the bus, they just stopped everything and you were left wherever you were, and you couldn't move and that remained in place all that Friday until they caught the guy that night in the hiding in the boat
1: How do you feel the number of years on now?
2: Yeah, it's it's three years later. It's, seems like yesterday. It's only when I thought about it this week. You remember what, all the kind of memories. Um, uh, it's a pity because it's such a great event. I was really positive is, is the people's reaction, how people came together. Boston Strong was this kind of motto they had. Um, so people were amazing. Said the city will get back up. And the next year, you know, Obama said you know, the Boston Marathon will happen again. It would be bigger and better. And they did go on to do that so i'd love to go back uh to do the marathon and to just to see the city again because it is it is a special place
1: you've brought a memento of the race
2: yeah i well i brought my finisher's medal um i got it framed i, I raced in new york as well so i put the two of them together so um yeah it's the 117th boston marathon that event was so it's 120th year this year so it's it's the oldest marathon in the world modern marathon
1: and just before you go, um, of course, what we don't know is that all those people traumatized and, and so hurt and injured and died three years later, of course, there's, there may well be no recovery for them.
2: Yeah, that was the thing. There was there was hundreds of people with all sorts of injuries. And my my only connection, I was sitting on the bus that morning going out to the start. And uh, there was a, a guy from New York I met, a guy called Justin, just met him that morning. But yeah, it crossed my mind after that race. was like, what happened to that guy? Because he said he would be crossing that finish line just around that time. And it took a few days on the internet when I searched the results and you type in his name and you're hoping it comes up. And it was that kind of thing. I never met the guy again. I don't know where he is, but I know he finished the race. So I hope he's okay. It's those kind of things you, you just don't know.
1: Hey, David Parr, thank you for joining me. Thanks, George. Well, of course, uh, that was David Power, who'd run in the marathon in 2013. We're here in Boston College, and um, we're talking now to Chris Cassidy. um, By day, uh, worker at the Boston Herald, but of course, on this day, marathon runner, one of 30,000, Chris.
3: Yeah. yeah, it's a great day. This is our, our big day for uh, not just Boston, but for runners you know, all over the country and all over the world to come here and, and actually run this race. Now, before we talk about the tragedy, I mean, this is marathon number what for you? Uh, number 12 for me. Uh, and it's been just something that's been amazing every year to continue to do it. Great crowd, great atmosphere. This is the place you want to be.
1: Now, everybody I've seen stocking up on bananas and yogurt and coffee and all this sort of stuff. What's the role of food in running a marathon?
3: It's, it's different for everyone, but you try to, uh, you know, load up on the carbs the, in the days before. So yesterday you had a lot of people eating a ton of pasta and a ton of potatoes. And uh, this morning it's uh, Clif bars and maybe a little oatmeal, bananas and bagels and stuff. And, and no matter what you eat, you always feel like, you know, it's not enough. I should have I should have eaten a little bit more. But uh, you just try to do the best you can because you're going to start feeling it at mile 21, 22. So you want to make sure you have uh, as much nutrition as possible. It's interesting, like, because I, I
1: scuba dive and I swim. And and the last thing you would do if you're swimming or scuba diving is eat. I mean, you don't find it sort of weighs in your stomach when you're pounding along, no?
3: It it depends on what you eat. You know, it it basically up to this point, you know, with all the Saturday training runs, you're trying to test out the different kinds of food that will will sit in your stomach. But, you know, food is fuel, basically. So you wouldn't drive your car on, you know, an empty gas tank. So the same thing with running a marathon. You want to make sure you have as much, you know, nutrition as, as can get you through it.
1: Now, my guest is Chris Cassidy, marathon. Marathon runner and uh, writer at the Boston Herald, Chris. Um, this is marathon number twelve. Um, so, is it? Is this about? Personal time. I, I mean, uh, target time. Do, have you got a personal best? Do you want to beat or Do you just want to finish?
3: Yeah, my my goal has always been to break four hours, and I have I've come close multiple times. I finished in four oh one uh, one year, which was uh, a little uh, heartbreaking. But then uh, two thousand thirteen, the year of the bombings, I was on pace to do uh, almost exactly four hours, and I never quite uh, got to the finish line. But I think today is is a combination of just trying to uh, have the the best race you can, but you know, also raise money uh, for. I'm part of a charity team, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. So we just try to also raise as much money as possible to try to help help uh, help out cancer patients. Now, um, you mentioned
1: 2013. Uh, tell me your experience, please, if you wouldn't mind.
3: Sure. I was uh, well. I remember that day was it was like one of these picture perfect, you know, sunny days uh, and a great day for a run. And uh, I was uh, turning onto the last stretch. I was probably two tenths of a mile away, and I remember uh, some friends who were on the side of Boylston Street yelled out to me, uh, and I waved over to them. And about five seconds later, I heard. I had my head down, but I heard. Uh, this loud explosion, and I looked up and I, I saw uh, some white and gray smoke coming from the finish line area, uh, and then. But at that point, we thought maybe it was cannon fire or something that you know was a planned, maybe military celebration or something. We had no idea it was a terrorist attack. And then, about five or ten seconds later, uh, heard another explosion behind me, and then turned around, and then you could just see. You know, there was a trash can that was blown away, and you could just see the, the devastation. At that point, you know, everyone knew that this was, a, you know, some kind of a, a bomb or a terrorist attack. And at that point, the race just, it just stopped. I mean, people were, uh, you know, the runners were scattering. I saw a couple runners high-jumping the, the metal barriers to try to get out of the way. Uh, it just became, in a, in a moment of, or in a matter of seconds, just became, you know, chaos. And for you, um, we were here,
1: and we were in the Seaport Hotel, and of course, as you know, the city then got locked down, and eventually they, they got the perpetrators of the atrocity. And um, It always seems to me that even after 9-11 and everything, America still is a very trusting society, and people in America still... Much less in Europe, I feel. Treasure their 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 right to walk around as they feel like. Is is that a sense Americans have?
3: Yeah, I think absolutely. I think there is a sense that you know you, you're not going to let the terrorists win, and you let terrorists win by living in fear and refusing to go out and not do the things that you would normally do. So I, I think as bad as that day was in 2013, I mean, really within a matter of hours, you started seeing sort of the best of people in Boston, whether it was the first responders or you know we saw a lot of businesses in the city coming together, putting together the one fund, trying to raise money for the survivors and for the victims' families. But also, I think that. There there's a sense yes security is going to be as tight as you know as it's been in the last couple of years uh, but there you're going to see probably more people out on the you know running the race and spectating than you've ever seen because this is just a great day, and I think there is a sense of, you know, Boston will not be defeated. It's a resilient city, and that's really the, the country as well, you know, after terrorism. The police and,
1: and the politicians generally came in for a lot of criticism in terms of shutting the city down and, and stuff like that. What was your reaction, particularly as somebody who works in a newspaper, what was, what was your reaction to how Boston performed
3: from a police and political perspective? I think, you know, th- it was a pretty controversial decision. I think basically you're shutting down one of the, the largest cities in America, and but it was also a very unusual circumstance, obviously. And I think that, uh, you know, it was really t- on that last day when they finally, uh, you know, caught um, Tsarnaev, it was uh, toward the end, I think they had just lifted that, uh, you know, that order. So uh, it was, I think, something, you know, it... it, it in the end, it worked out well, um, but I, I think it was one of those things they, they couldn't have gone gotten away with it longer than they, they did because you basically had an entire city you know, hunkering down for an entire day, um, and you can't have that happening for for multiple days. But but I think you know generally speaking, in, in the reviews, you know the, the, all of the law enforcement uh, you know teams got fairly high marks for for what they did, and they certainly apprehended, uh, and, and we just had the the, uh, the trial uh, last year, so.
1: But the the thing about looking at it from a security point of view for you in America, for the French, for the Belgians, and and us even in Ireland, is is the perpetrators in in um, twenty thirteen weren't part of a large conspiracy. They weren't part of a, a major group, and in fact, they were almost the kind of people that lived the American dream that come here from abroad or offered hospitality and education and everything by Americans, and then they blow people are but that's very difficult to combat and this is the i think the terrifying perspective for all of us who want to live in peace isn't it
3: well and i think that certainly they were you know given the the they were given a lot of opportunities you know they the family had was given you know they were on welfare they had uh, uh you know they went to public universities they were certainly given a lot of opportunities from both the state and the and the American government, so, and you're right, they weren't part of any kind of larger uh, organization. So that sort of adds a little bit to the fear of, you know, that you can have these sort of lone wolf attacks. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's still one of those things that you can't, you know, you, you can't stop living your life just because you don't know, you know, who the person next to you is or what they're, what they're what they're up to
1: it, we're looking at in europe we're looking at a huge influx of refugees from from the middle east and africa and so on as an american do you see yourself as 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 a, a
3: hard guy on this or are you liberal on this well, I'm a reporter, so they don't let me have any any opinions at all. But it's been interesting. I've been covering the political, uh, p- uh, the presidential election here, and I think it's been really interesting to see, you know, people sort of divided on the sort of Donald Trump side. This this feeling that you know we need to put up a wall in Mexico. We need to, uh, you know, be very careful about the, t- the type of people that we're we're letting in. And then you also see sort of the the, the Democratic side of of uh, you know saying if we start excluding people, then that plays right into the hands of the terrorists who want. To kind of create chaos and you know turn Muslims against each other or turn the you know the world against them. Uh, so I think you know the, probably the future of the American policy on this is going to be decided in, in November. And in November, um, we're a good few months
1: out, but I mean. If it were a Trump-Hillary contest, everybody's saying Trump would lose 40 states. I personally, from a distance, find that difficult. Do you think he would He would be soundly defeated by, by one of the most unpopular
3: politicians in
1: America? Do you it, believe that?
3: It's interesting, because if you look at the polls, I mean, both of them are really unpopular uh, across the country. I mean, Trump has his supporters. He's certainly the front-runner on the Republican side. But uh, you look at nationally, uh, there are a lot of people that are not comfortable with him in... And in a head-to-head matchup in a lot of the polls, he loses to Hillary Clinton. But I think the question is, are Republicans okay with nominating Donald Trump? Are they going to go for someone like Ted Cruz? If they don't nominate Donald Trump, I think the, I think a lot of people would say he's going to try to run as an independent. And then you're just splitting, um, you know, voters. I mean, there are certain uh, states and certain parts of the population, Donald Trump, could get that no Republican or Democrat, you know, that, that he's just uniquely suited for. Um, so I think a three-person 3, uh, three person race would really kind of shake things up. But I think a Trump-Clinton race from a media perspective, I can't think of two bigger name candidates uh, that you could dream of a sort of political showdown like this.
1: Well, that's you and me both. So uh, the right hook and the Boston Herald are going to be covering this election. And uh, Chris Cassidy, who's, who's given up his time before he goes out to run, hope the magic Four Hours is beaten today, Chris, at the 12th attempt. And thank you so much for giving me your time.
3: Thank you, George. The Right
4: Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander
1: 7-Seater Automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie all right, uh, welcome back to The Right Hook. Broadcasting as we are from Boston College's football stadium. We're over here uh, with the Gateway to Europe initiative, which will bring jobs and businesses uh, back to Ireland from America. And, of course, it's a bank holiday, and they're running uh, the oldest marathon in America, the Boston Marathon, just around the corner from here, 30,000 uh participants taking place but I've got three Irish people in this studio Uh, first Sean O'Rourke Sean you're working full-time at Boston College Uh, yeah
7: I'm studying undergrad here in applied psychology and human development
1: so you came here as a freshman. You didn't you didn't do a previous degree in Ireland?
7: No, I did um a first year at Trinity and then I transferred. I uh, there was a scholarship came up so I applied and got oh. in.
1: Oh right, okay. Yeah. And um so you'll do another three years <laughs> in Yeah, exactly
7: and continue at the four, that's
1: yeah, uh, traumatic was it, or was it a great experience? What's it like?
7: Um, well, yeah. So there's a custom Scholarship that's funded for uh, Gonzaga. I went there for secondary school.
1: This, this is a Jesuit school. Yeah, and uh, there's the link there. Yeah. Boston College. Mm-hmm.
7: Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was great fun when I got uh, arrived. I was living with three roommates all in the same room. So. Uh,
1: Americans.
7: Yeah, uh, one from Connecticut, another from Philadelphia, and actually, sorry, the last guy was from Lebanon.
1: All right. That's so, okay. Yeah. And what's what's different having had a year at Trinity? What's different between Trinity and Boston College, or an Irish university versus an American university?
7: I think the first, it's I suppose the way they measure uh, your academic scores at Trinity, there was one big exam at the end of the year in May, and the RDS, and uh, here it's continuous assessment, so you might have tests. Every four weeks, every six weeks, and so that's uh, the big difference. Yeah, there. our
1: kind of cynical understanding of of uh, undergraduate at Amer- in American universities is you get points for weightlifting and African-American yeah. music studies and stuff like that, do you?
7: Yeah, there's a great range uh, of topics available. So it's, this is a liberal arts college, and you can t- do lots of classes and different things. Uh, Nathan here was doing one in forensic sciences, so it's terrific. You've got a huge range, and there are different ways... Um, you might have two years it's you've got general study available to you and then you specialize for two years in whatever your degree is be that english or french or I,
1: you did mention nathan and just looking at your biceps nathan you're obviously you're obviously getting a student doing uh working weightlifting as well are you no, I'm not too bad. I'm just naturally, naturally... But bad. you're a you're <laughs> a postgraduate student. <laughs>
6: no, I'm actually... I'm an undergraduate as well. But again, you know, our degree systems back home are three years long. And again, uh, the colleges back home give you an option to come here for a year. And it prolongs it then to four years.
1: All right. And how much... Uh,
6: I mean, is there a cost involved here for you? Um, being honest, the way it works is back home that the colleges have a partnership with the colleges here in America. So you get to come to a college like Boston College. And again... It's just an exchange program. So you get this great opportunity to come here and you have to pay the same as you would back home, which again is a a priceless experience. And again, I'd recommend it to anyone anyone who would consider it.
1: Now, um, what Sean was talking about was, you know, the vast range of topics you do. It's a liberal mm-hmm. arts school. We, we, we kind of don't get what a liberal arts school means because you can do medicine or whatever in an Irish yeah. school. Whereas over here, you tend to do a liberal arts degree and then you do things like law and medicine and so on as a postgraduate. Isn't that right?
6: Yeah. Yep. One, of the, one of the big advantages here, I find, compared to the, the Irish system, is that when you do your leaving and sir, you have to kind of choose your degree, Mm. and you're kind of very much stuck with that degree. Whereas when you you come to the United States and you realise how they work, you have kind of a year to two years to pick what subjects you want to do. And you get to do these great subjects. Again, Boston College have cores, so you do theology, you have to do some nursing classes, and different classes. And again, it really kind of whets your appetite for different different classes you might have a, a liking for. And again, it broadens all horizons.
1: But in a sense, it almost
6: means... That you have to do postgraduate work to get where you want to go. You do. You definitely have to do postgraduate work here now. And again, even if you compare it to back in Ireland, a degree, a bachelor degree is becoming more and more common. So again, you really have to specialize and you have to look to do a master's. And again, you might have to go on and do a doctorate. Uh,
1: I'm also joined by Christine Navon, who's here from NUI Galway on a similar exchange program. I am,
4: yeah.
1: have you? This is a gender question, so okay. I'm not going to make an <laughs> apology for it. But, okay. but in colleges in America, they 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 have very strict gender rules, much more than we have in Irish colleges. Have you noticed that? Um,
4: I don't know. What What do you mean, really? By
1: well, there are much more laws and regulations and rules and stuff.
4: For women. Do yeah.
1: Men um, and women and the interaction between them and all that sort of thing. You haven't come across it, You though. mean social
7: codes kind yeah. of thing? I have okay. to
4: say I actually haven't at all, really. Um, okay. Maybe it's different to be here full-time as a student, but no, not at all. Well, not in class anyways. It's kind of... Right,
1: but you're here for a year. You exactly. and Nathan are here yeah. for a year, where Sean's full time. Yeah, exactly. Is it a bit too short? I mean, are you just kind so of getting the hang of it, and you're going home?
4: Uh, no, see the thing is, so some people act- a lot of most exchange students come for one semester. So I was actually really lucky to be able to come for the two semesters because um, I did two years psychology in NUI Galway, and then this is my I'm adding on a year like Nathan by being here. Um, no, I don't. Th- I think a year is just the right amount of time because. Um, I kind of want to get my degree finished at home at the same time, <laughs> um, and I don't know. A more than a year would be for me. I, I think too too long away from my friends and family and stuff, but. Yeah. I don't know. I, again, if the, if the if the if the I got offered it, I probably <laughs> I wouldn't be able to refuse it because I just love it here. But
1: yeah, there's a great tradition mm. in American universities, which is they have this kind of midterm break roundabout now, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and then they all go off to Cancun in Mexico yeah, exactly. and yeah. they they get wasted. It's it's similar <laughs> to Magaluf or
7: Ibiza with our students. Yeah, so <laughs> that, Did that was actually go to
4: <laughs> Cancun. So I went for spring break, I went to um, I went to New Orleans and then I went to Las Vegas. We didn't do Cancun because it was going to take like over a day to get there and we kind of just wanted you to... did get wasted? I d- <laughs> I have to say I did get... <laughs> I enjoyed myself, I did. Um, but yeah. I think that's kind of like when okay. you come to America, that's just what you have to do. What was you know?
6: your uh, spring break experience like, Nathan? My spring break, I was blessed. I've, I've made American friends and we got invited out to L.A so we went out to LA me and a group of four or five lads we went out to LA and we went to San Francisco and Malibu and then me being the only one who was 21 it was actually cheaper to fly back from Las Vegas so again I went and did a day in Las Vegas and again I kind of got to take that experience in especially as an Irishman something that you might have. And somebody's
1: studying a minute. Like minute doesn't really hack it where Vegas is concerned.
6: <laughs> no, I wouldn't say it doesn't. It? Minute's nice and it's it's nice and communal and again, everyone knows everyone. Yeah. again, you go to Las Vegas, you don't know who you're going to see or what you're going to see. Again, it's a nice change, but at the same time, again, it's all right. about learning. Uh,
1: now, uh, the, the Sean O'Rourke, um, you're here full-time, which is very important as we close off. You're going to spend yeah. four years here. It's almost a sense that if you spend four years in an American university, you're going to do post-grad in America, you're going to get a job in America, and you're going to marry an American girl, and you're going to have children in America, <laughs> and you're never going to go back to our
7: Maybe, we'll see. Uh, just going no, to try but and is take it. It's us...
1: likely, though, isn't it? I'd say more you likely to... than otherwise, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you accept um, that. So when you yeah. came here, you knew that you were gone yeah. from Leafy Rattler or whatever.
7: Yeah, uh, I suppose so. Yeah, I was crying on the uh, airplane over here and kind of thinking, what have I done and where am I going? But um, yeah, we'll see. Uh, there's a couple of post-grad service opportunities available and right. there's lots of uh, master's programs. So I we'll find
1: see. I cry on the plane as well. So yeah, don't worry so. <laughs> well, listen, yeah. my thanks to all of you. Thanks for coming in. Sean O'Rourke and Nathan McGinn from NUI Minute, you heard where they're thinking of putting in a casino after <laughs> Nathan's experience. <laughs> Christina, Yvonne from NUI Galway, uh, whose friends didn't know she got wasted in Las Vegas. <laughs> well, that's it for today. We've had a super day on the Boston College campus in the football stadium. The Eagles, don't forget, are coming in September to play in the Erlingas Football Classic against Georgia Tech.